Hello and welcome to the Stockout. As we see the last the box fall off that uh, conveyor right there. Uh, the Stockout is your show at FreightWaves about uh, CPG companies, uh, supply chains, and CPG companies' uh, supply chains. I am your host, Mike Bowden-Distel. I'm an analyst and market expert here at uh, FreightWaves. And uh, today, after, let's uh, call it a rather volatile um, week in the market, first uh, down and then up, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about, um, you know, some of the financial results of, uh, you know, one CPG company in particular, uh, General Mills. I'll give a little bit of a brief uh, rundown of the news in the CPG industry, what I wrote about uh, for this week's uh, The Stockout Newsletter, um, which you can access at um, FreightWaves.com forward slash The Stockout. And then we're going to get into our topic of the week uh, with, a, with a special guest, uh, Don Davis of uh, New York uh, Shipping Exchange, NYSHEX. And um, we're going to be talking about uh, what uh, uh, sh- uh, shipping companies, to do, what a shipper is to do, uh, trying to get uh, containers uh, you know, into the United States. And that's really been sort of the topic of 2021. Um, in fact, as I look at FreightWaves.com right now, um, Eric Kulish has just published a, a report uh, talking about uh, Nike, who also reported uh, just late this week. See the shares of that are down. You're having you know, some supply chain difficulty. So I encourage you to go and read about that. Um, but before we do all those things uh, today, I'm going to uh, give a, a brief uh, a thank you to our sponsor. The sponsor is NYSHEX. That's the New York uh, Shipping Exchange. Uh, New York Shipping Exchange, or NYSHEX, is supporting the transformation of container shipping by solving inefficiencies associated with booking downfalls and shipment rollings. To learn more, visit NYSHEX.com. That's N-Y-S-H-E-X.com. Uh, we'll hear from NYSHEX in a minute, um, but first, just a brief rundown of uh, the CPG news, and really the CPG company that, that, that reported this week was General Mills. And General Mills is a little, on, a, on a different um, you know, calendar calendar year, so like it's kind of a, a bellwether, a preview of what a lot of the CPG companies are going to be talking about here in uh, October when, when those that are on a calendar year will start reporting, and, and I thought the results were pretty encouraging, actually. Um, you know, General Mills uh, actually beat the street consensus by about 10 cents, which was unusual because they had just pre-announced within the past you know, couple of weeks. So usually you wouldn't expect that degree of um, you know, vault, uh, uh, a variance after the company had already sort of discussed what the results are going to be before actually formally uh, you know, reporting uh, the, the, the results. Um, on the encouraging side, uh, gross margin contraction was only, and I sort of have only in quotes, 150 basis points which I think is less than a lot of people have feared. I mean, really sort of the big issue in the CPG industry, aside from all the supply chain constraints, have, has been inflation and things like ingredients, packaging, labor, contract manufacturing. All those things are, are working to pinch the margins of the, in, the, in the CPG industry. I think General Mills is handling that better than most with, with some efficiencies, um, you know, able to, to keep the margin con- compression, uh, you know, relatively, uh, you know, modest to 250 basis points without overly increasing their prices. Although their prices are rising, um, just along with uh, sort of sort of everything else. I think they said three to four um, percent. And then for the year, they're expecting organic sales to be down one percent, operating profit down about two percent, which those are much shallower declines than I think most people had anticipated for most of the big companies in the CPG industry coming off of what was uh, sort of a historic time frame uh, you know a year ago when consumers went out bought lots of groceries bought lots of name brand items they still seem to be buying those name brand items still seem to be spending a tremendous amount of money 
Um, also saw that uh, Bank of America's credit card spending was up something like 18% year over year. So consumers are still really willing and able to you know, spend a lot of money, um, you know, even as they uh, get out more and go to more restaurants in person, don't really seem to be cutting back on uh, some of the things that we thought maybe uh, that that spending would, would displace, like um, some of the name brand uh, consumer uh, consumable items. Um, so, so I think it's a positive thing for those in the CPG industry. And then quickly, just want to, um, you know, highlight some of the articles that I called out in this week's uh, CPG newsletters. Interesting one from Food Dive, which is one that, um, you know, I think does a nice job uh, with packaged uh, food and, and, and various points in the supply chain. They talked about uh, the, the pea protein as an alternative for, for animal-based uh, protein, which sort of made me think, well, you know, how do I invest in in peas as a source of protein, because you know some you know, analysts are thinking that it's going to be like a twenty to thirty percent growth rate annually over the next several years, and, and that's possible because that's really had just been used in an animal feed, really hadn't been used in human products. But there's such a big push right now to substitute uh, animal-based proteins for 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 food-based proteins um, and plant-based proteins. So interesting. Uh, Article there also uh, talked about the issue with the the white striping in the chicken. Um, you know, a lot of animal rights groups are trying to get uh, have, have consumers think about the, the sort of white striping in, in chicken, which is basically means that you know shippers that are chickens that are cooped up, um, you know, aren't able to develop the muscle they typically would have. So it's 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 sort of analogous to the free range eggs. Um, also looking at the more uh, muscular chickens, um, and then there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal that I called out uh, about a company called Loop, which is testing whether fast food consumers will actually you know, pay a deposit for a returnable um, packaging and return that packaging to get their deposit back um, could be a potential way to really um, you know, help with uh, uh, the environmental footprint of, of food. They sort of say, well, if this works in uh, fast food, they're going to start to roll this out in, um, in in grocery items as well. So I thought those were kind of the, the most interesting, you know, packaged news stories of the week. If you want to you know, be kept up to date on this, just feel free to sign up for the Stockout newsletter. Go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout. And uh, you can sign up for that uh, for, for free. So with that as a little bit of a rundown of the news, I'm going to like to bring on our, our guest this week, which is Don Davis. Um, I'll introduce Don. Uh, Don is the Vice President of Carrier Strategy at the New York Shipping Exchange, or NYSHEX. Uh, ex- his experience was weighted heavily towards the carrier side. So he has a lot of experience with the big ocean carriers, Hapheck, Lloyd, CMA, CGM. Um, and so he has a lot of insight into how those carriers um, you know, think about utilizing their vessels productively and um, you know, how they you know, approach you know, rate negotiations. And so, uh, you know, NYSHEX, my understanding, and we're going to hear more, more from Don in a, in a moment, but, you know, sort, sort of working, you know, kind of on behalf of the shippers that want to, you know, have multi-year agreements uh, to, to, to move, uh, you know, containers um, so they don't get le- left out in the cold. This has been a huge issue, um, you know, this year, but you really do need someone who has a, a lot of experience on the, on the carrier side. Um, so with that as a little bit of an intro, I'd like to bring Bring on Don and, and, and Don. Thank you for for joining me today. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, why don't we start out and just by giving us a little bit of an overview of uh, NYSHEX, um for those who are not familiar and you know, sort of what your 
your your main sort of product is and and, and talk to us about the the, the multi-year uh, ocean shipping contracts and how that is different from you know what the current practice or typical practice is yeah sure thanks um so nishex is is simply a technology company and we assist shippers and carriers in terms of their contracting process and there's really four things that we do um, the first thing that we do is we help shippers and carriers have a contract structure which it can enable a two-way commitment because that's really the key of our contract. So it's not um, a one-way commitment on the shipper side or the carrier side. Both parties are committed with clear terms. And um, you might ask, well, don't carriers and shippers already have a contract today? They do, but part of the challenge is with the existing contract structure, typically it's a little vague on the specifics. And I'll give you a for instance. Um, a company could sign a, a contract for 10,000 TEUs and it'll last for a year. And the tendency is to say, well, your allocation will be that MQC, MQC divided by 52, which could be 100. But is it really 100? And what happens if I start to fall behind in the first month? I've been only shipping 80. Are you obligated in the second month to give me more, 120? And the contract doesn't really speak to that, but if either party feels wronged in that scenario, uh, the way to remedy that is is to go to a court and and to litigate it. So, um, it, and of course, it doesn't really happen because that can be commercially damaging. So, in our world, we're helping create a contract structure that's first of all clear as far as what both parties are going to do for the duration of that contract. And it may not necessarily be multi-year. I think there's a heavy push to multi-year, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute. But um, you could create the duration as short as a, a week, although we don't see too much of that. It's usually either quarterly, annually, or multi-year. Um, but the second thing that we do is we have a financial incentive for performance. So typically, um, there is just an agreement that parties sign to, but our agreements come with some sort of collateral or a deposit, if you will. So there could be cash up front, or there could be a bond as a means of collateral, but it gives us something to draw from so that if one or the other party doesn't perform, then the penalties associated to that will be drawn from the deposit. So there, this doesn't get mixed up in any sort of receivable or any sort of AR uh, issue that might exist. Um, the two other things that we do are one, performance management. So we make sure that both parties are performing as outlined in the contract. And the fourth part is the resolution management, which means if somebody doesn't perform uh, during that time period. And typically, we uh, reconcile the contract on a monthly basis, even though it might run for a year, we don't wait till the end of the year to or the end of the contract to um, review how it's been performing, we do that monthly. But that resolution is one where we're monitoring, okay, who, if there was a, a, a shortfall of performance, it was it uh, due to container availability? Was it due to the shipper not showing up? Was it due to the carrier canceling bookings? So all the while we're recording this information, we have data which comes in, we receive information from our shippers that they can provide us. But we, we review that at the end of the month and we say, okay, this or that was the reason for the shortfall. And then um, we notify both parties of our, our findings. And then if there's a penalty associated with that, then of course they would be imposed. But I would say that uh, more often than not, we don't see penalties being uh, sought out because with the framework, the structure, the penalties, both parties typically perform in line with the, the contract terms. 
Okay, so so that's interesting. So it, it sounds like you don't work, you know, really on behalf of one side or the other. You're sort of, uh, you know, somewhat in between. Who's neutral? Who is is almost like the the referee? It's 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 like you know, you're the one who decides. You know, your one party was wrong or, or another party was wrong. Almost like a you know mediator, ar- arbitrator type type thing. So they they will put down a, a deposit like like an escrow, and that could go to the other party if if you determine that you know one party was was wrong. Am I understanding that that right? Absolutely correct. That that there's a deposit. We don't hold the deposit. Um, this is held by Goldman Sachs, who's one of our investors, um, and they hold it in escrow. Um, and then if the the contract is fulfilled and and there's a balance left, then it's returned to to the shipper in that case. Um, but it just gives us something to draw from. It gives the contract teeth and ensures that the shippers aren't going to just walk away. Uh, it makes it more punitive because they they have skin in the game. And um, we see that when these contracts have teeth and and both parties are concerned about a penalty, then the performance actually works really well. Okay. So, and then, you know, how, how would you describe, um, you know, the way that this, uh, you know, contract, uh, you know, would work at various points in the business cycle? I mean, right, you know, now, I mean, the issue really is that, um, the shippers, you know, have slots on the the vessels, and 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 those have been, you know, pushed to the next contain next vessel to the next vessel after that. They're having a hard time getting those containers, you know, into the United States. Let's say if they're being imported from China, um, what you were describing was almost the opposite, where you know the, the shipper was thinking about you know um, shipping 100 containers, but there was only demand for for 80, and 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 really it's sort of be the opposite, you know, situation, but. Um, you know, how do you see, you know, the demand for, you know, these type of contracts changing um, throughout the, the business cycle? Well, let me just say that I think the industry is changing. There's a lot of, I mean, I've been in this industry a long time, uh, not on the carrier side anymore, but 26 years on the carrier side. Um, but the the industry has really been slow to change and it's, it's almost made fun of because it always, people would say things like we're in the stone age and things like that. And um you know, I can understand why, because it just didn't feel like there was a lot of innovation. And so when you look at the current contracting process, it really is an old way to do things. And um, this was really driven by carriers having low margins for a long time. I mean, rate levels were could be three digits. Um, and you think about how expensive it is to operate a ship and containers and bunker, you know, when there's low yielding, you can understand why there might have been bookings canceled or rolled or shippers might shop around and say, okay, you want to increase my rates? Well, these guys aren't going to, so I'm going to just move. And it's um, penalty-free because you don't want to sue your shipper because uh, then it's going to be damaging to that relationship. So for a long time, um, rates were low and and there was ample supply. So there really wasn't much momentum behind that. But I think around about two years ago, maybe three years ago, carriers really started to get control of their capacity and started to do these things like blank sale and things like that. And once blank sailings really started, you could see that carriers had a much better handle on their capacity. Then you have COVID, um, which shut things down, but then created this surge um, around about June of last year. And then we've been in a perpetual peak season since then. So, um, you know, it's been difficult, but I think the the demand for doing things differently is high. And I think there's many companies which are starting to think of how can I manage this differently? And, um, you know, you mentioned multi-year. I think that's really the name of the game now for carriers because they're trying to prioritize 
um, multi-year contracts. They obviously want to mitigate downside risks because um, rate levels are, are pretty high. And that doesn't mean that carriers want to contract for $20,000 for three years. They're, they're actually contracting at, I'd say, fairly reasonable rate levels. But they're trying to do that for the longer term because they obviously want to stabilize their revenue stream because it's been so unstable and so low for so long. It makes sense for them to prioritize those things. And we sit somewhere in the middle and say, okay, well, we have a deposit. We can ensure that parties aren't walking away. So there's quite a bit of interest um, to have us somewhere in the middle to help facilitate these types of contracts. Yeah, I can certainly understand if, if I'm an ocean carrier right now and I see the rates that are absolutely you know tremendous, that I would want to take some steps to let's say, let's, let's, let's try not to make this just a 2021 event. Let's, let's try to you know, extend the economics out the next few years and a multi-year um, you know, contract would, would really be attractive. Um, but interested to see, um, you know, hear, hear from you about what interest there is from shippers, because, you know, a lot of shippers would, would say, well, you know, these are extraordinary circumstances, too. Things will be better, you know, next year, maybe. Maybe it'll take a little bit longer than that because uh, some of these ocean carriers are, um, you know, building new vessels and things, which is going to bring on capacity. But but what's been, how, how has the response been from uh, shippers? I, I think it's been good. Um, I think shippers see that they can do this as a hedge. So do you want to do it for 100% of your business? Probably not. Um, do you want to do it for 20%, 50%? I think that depends on the company. Um, I think that there's companies that see their supply chain as something strategic and can give them an advantage over their competitors. So if they can stabilize their supply chain, they see the value in that. Um, and again, it's, it's, I mean, let's just put it in perspective. If for carriers to break even in the TP's bound trade, let's just say the rate should be about $2,000. And right now the spot rate is somewhere like $9,000. And you might pay upwards of $20,000 to get incremental capacity. So there's quite a spread there. And as I said, my, my impression is that carriers are saying, okay, I'm not looking for these significantly high rates, but I'm looking for something north of profitability and something where we're going to agree for a long time. And well, I guess three years is a long time, but, um, I think it's something where they just want to create that stability. And it's also a way to improve your relationship with the carriers because you're not then renegotiating. You're not demonstrating that your value proposition is, is cost. You're saying, I value the service and you're willing to pay for it. And I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of signs going forward that there could be um, strength in the market for, for an extended period of time. I think there's some risk of the uh, labor negotiations on the West Coast in the first half of next year. So there's reasons to say, you know, I think there could be some instability there. So I want to stabilize this as much as I can. Got it. And uh, is there an ideal, um, you know, customer or ideal shipper segment that, that that's well-suited for this? I mean, you, you think that, um, you know, shippers that have sort of volatile shipments from one year to the next are, are maybe better suited for this or, or, or any, you know, particular you know, category of, of, of shippers that you think are, you, that you're really targeting? Um, no, I mean, I, I think really it can work for any type of company. It just, I think what is, is more of the question is how much of your volume can you tie up into a, to a committed contract? And I, I don't want to make it sound like this is easy because on paper it sounds easy, but what you find as you dig into it, it's not as easy as it might you might think, because you're just having to manage your supply chain differently. Now you really need to pay attention to how much you're loading, making sure you're fulfilling those commitments first. And and it's there's some learning that happens along the way. So um, 
I, I think that's one is, you know, how how well do you understand how things are happening currently in your supply chain? And then I think two, what are your growth expectations? Do you see you have density out of certain areas? Um, I think those are really the drivers to does it make sense for you to do it? But from a commodity segment, I mean, I think because these rate levels aren't, you know, these twenty, thirty thousand dollar rates, which I don't think most companies can afford, or at least all companies certainly can't afford it. Um, I think you're talking about a more sensible price, but you're also creating that stability. So I think for, there are um, a variety of verticals where it could work. Got it. That makes sense. Um, and also just wanted to ask you, I just uh, your thoughts on the outlook for the industry. Um, you know, one of the debates here that I've seen from various Wall Street um, you know, analysts is you know, how long the sort of the cycle is, is going to last. We saw that some of the ocean uh, carriers report just you know, profits that were sort of off the charts, um, you know, really as a result of, of, the, of those rates that were off the charts. And, you know, some are saying, well, this is going to be sort of the peak year. Some others are saying that profits in 2022 could be even higher than, than, than 2021. You have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I'm not good at making predictions, but, um, I'm, but I guess, you know, a lot of people are wrong with predictions or so meteorologists and things, but um, I, I would expect 2022, to be stronger than 2021 because um, you saw that the r- rate levels rose throughout the year. So um, I, I think if you, you you see that some carriers are putting a cap on that. CMA has said we're not going to increase rates anymore. Hapag Lloyd, me too, that. So we can see that the rates are, are leveling off. The carriers aren't interested to push that higher, but they're at a point now where they're higher than they were at any other point of the year. So if you if you take that as a basis and say, I expect that trend to continue for next year, a full year of rate levels at the current point mean that the carriers will make more money. And, and I fully expect that um, things will continue to be strong going into next year. Um, some speculate that in 2023, that when some of the capacity starts to come on, that um, things will start to loosen up on the import side. It's, I mean, that could happen. It's It's hard to say because you can't, judge you know how much scrapping is going to happen are these what ships are going to be taken out of rotation um so there's some things which are hard to predict but um i think definitely for next year it, it intends to be strong yeah i'd have to agree with that and and also just want to ask you about i mean you mentioned them um, the, the the spot rate caps for um the cma cgm and um Hapak lloyd uh, you know, do you view that as being, you know, something that the, the sort of the marketplace is telling you that, that things aren't getting any, you know, incrementally tighter, or is it, um, you know, so, some way for the, the ocean carriers to demonstrate that, you know, that maybe the industry is not too concentrated now that you have most of the capacity being controlled by three, um, you know, ocean alliances. Well, I, I think that there's quite a bit of shipper frustration over the rate levels, and you can understand why because they vaulted up to such a point that. I mean, I certainly never thought they'd be this high. Um, and I think carriers are saying, look, you know, we're not trying to be um, excessive here. We're trying to put a stop to the rate levels that we're seeing. I mean, they're capped for duration, too. It's conceivable they could go up again uh, sometime next year. But I think it's just some signaling from the carriers that they're not going to keep pushing rates higher. They they and, and the people I talk to say, you know, we want to honor our commitments and that's really what we want to focus on. We don't want to keep entertaining these offers of higher rate levels. We want to focus on delivering what we've contracted. And, you know, my sense is that there's a, there's certain carriers that are really focused on that because they see the long-term value and they understand that the market may change at some point. Well, I guess it will change at some point. And 
you know, they they want to demonstrate to their shippers that they're 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 very realistic and pragmatic. Their results are sufficient for them, and that they want to focus on service delivery. Got it. That makes sense. I um, also wanted to ask you about um, you know some of these big uh, freight forwarders like like an expediters, which you know it has access to you know a certain amount of capacity. Is sort of my understanding is this one way for a shipper to to gain access to um, you know some of these slots on vessels that maybe you know, inter, you know deal with a, a company like an expediters that acts as an intermediary. Do, do you view companies like that as as being you know targets for your contracts or are your contracts more of an alternative to, to using a, a company like that? No, I, actually, we have the support of uh, several large NVOs. Um, I think for NVOs, it's helpful because, um, first of all, they can they can commit with a carrier and it gives them some strength in their sales because they can go to their shippers and say, hey, you know, I have this commitment from a carrier and it's uh, effectively punitive if the party the other party doesn't deliver. Um, and I think a lot of ways NBOs are like us in that they're in a two-sided network. They deal with care, ship, care carriers and shippers just like we do. Um, so for them to say, well, I can offer something where I have a commitment from the carrier because MBOs, I mean, they're, they're having a hard time too um, getting their full MQC. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier, the contract structures are written so that it's hard to determine who's at fault and what another party has to do to help the other party get up to their MQC. So I see us helping NBOs. And um, I think giving NBOs the, the opportunity to say, hey, I can commit with a shipper too, is powerful. And it creates value for the for the carrier. Because I think a lot of times carriers view NBOs as transactional and they might hop around from different carriers. Hard to do in a tight market. But um, I, I, I find that we create a quite a bit of value for for the MBOs in terms of the two-way commitment, but also the visibility tool to, to be able to read from one sheet of music, if you will. Um, carriers look at allocation and uh, performance differently. The type of information you find in their websites might be different than another one. Whereas uh, when you go to our website, if you go to any carrier, the information is displayed in the same way. So it's much easier for MBOs to manage their allocation than you know, logging on to six or seven different websites. Great. That's really, um, you know, encouraging that you have the, the MBOs on, on board. Um, also just wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the other big topics this year has been the, the container availability. I mean, there's, you know, the, the basically uh, you see a lot in the, the U.S. domestic, uh, you know, uh, data where there's lots of, you know, empty containers moving back to the, the, the West Coast. Um, there's 40 foot containers moving back to the West Coast. There's also a lot more transloading from uh, international containers into domestic containers just because the, the international containers are in short supply and they want those containers back quickly for the, for the head hauls. Um, you know, what's your outlook for you know, container availability um, the next couple of years? <laughs> um, not good. Um, I know <laughs> carriers are definitely doing everything they can to get their hands on uh, both capacity and containers, but specifically on containers, the, the challenge is um, that just all this congestion. I mean, I, I think there's uh, 60 odd ships uh, trying to get in the port of Long Beach. And uh, the problem is that just ties up container availability. When those ships can't discharge, unload, and be sent back or be reused for exports, it's creating a real problem for the carriers. And um, I see this as something that's unfortunately going to continue. I mean, we saw this over the past year that um, whether it was port congestion, whether it was uh, a port closure due to COVID, 
um, it seemed like there was always something that was happening that was making the matter worse. And it creates just a further backlog and these backlogs create congestion and it just starts to feed on itself. And I think it's going to take some time for that to stabilize. So um, I expect it, unfortunately, to be difficult for the next year at least. Um, and then hopefully by the second half of next year, it can really improve and stabilize. Got it. It sounds like we're, it's going to be, that issue is going to be with us for, for some time. Um, unfortunately, we're about out of time. Um, but how can folks uh, reach out to you and uh, Nice Chefs? Yeah, sure. Well, you mentioned our website, so you can log on and www.nishex.com. Um, you, you, you can also reach out to me. My email address is donald.davis at nishex.com. Happy to an- answer any questions or provide any insights that your listeners might need. Okay, perfect. And feel free to reach out to me at mbowden, just still at freightwaves.com. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, Vice President of Logistics from the Consumer Brands Association. Uh, so have another good uh, discussion then. But with that, wish everyone a, a great uh, weekend.